evening, afternoon, or morning, depending on when you are listening to this. We are lucky today on five questions. We have the Dr. Claudia Cook in the house. One of my favorite people, one of my favorite healthcare practitioners, one of the most knowledgeable people that I know. I know I'm making you blush and I already apologize for that, but it needs to be said. I am lucky to know Dr. Cook. She helped me as being one of the only few functional medicine practitioners who were also MDs in the state of New York, which are specifically in New York City, it's really hard to find. And I felt blessed to one, find someone with those credentials and then find out that they were truly lovely and very helpful. So that's how I know Dr. Cook. I have been dabbling and learning more about functional medicine. I really do think that it's the future, but I'd like to turn it over now to her so she can tell us her story and then we're gonna dive into what functional medicine is. So Dr. Cook, please tell us your story and spare no detail. Okay. So Steve, I, um, I trained in internal medicine and after internal medicine residency, I worked for five years full time in one of the big busy ERs here in the city and then seven years part time as I was building the practice. And um, um, I was always drawn to preventive medicine. I did a public health degree along with my medical degree and always interested in nutrition. I grew up in the countryside. I grew up on a farm and um, in the family, there was already an orientation toward, um, shall we say, minimizing, minimizing drug therapy and making the most of diet and nutrition and and where was that, Doug? Where did you grow up? It was in central New Jersey, the Garden State. Jersey, yeah. I love it. When I was in the Garden State. Yeah. Major agricultural force until the early 60s. <laughs> exactly. Things have changed. Right. So um, in any case, I... Um, I was drawn to medicine. It was that I saw it, I came to it very late. I never dreamt of becoming a doctor, although both my grandfathers were doctors. Mm -hmm. um, my, my, I did not grow up around medicine, but my father's family had four generations of doctors before him. And, uh, and my mother's father was also a medical doctor. And I was, I was, Oh my gosh, I think 21 when the idea first occurred. And I saw it as something that would embrace all my interests under one umbrella. And um, started in with pre-med courses um, and took a couple of years between college and medical school to work in the world and reconsider, was this something I really wanted to do? And um, I, um, I've i never regretted my choice. I love what I do, I love people, and I love, I love um, the whole process of, first of all, listening to people's stories, learning how people translate their stories into their lives and into their bodies, into their health, and seeing people make positive transformational changes. And um, 
yes, I do cling to the silver lining always. And I really couldn't, I couldn't stay in this if I didn't believe in the capacity that we have to transform ourselves, to transform our bodies, to transform our minds and to transform our world. And so, you know, that is what animates me in the day to day. And I'm very much enlivened and inspired by the changes that I see people making every day. So I worked, I, I thought I was going to be a country doctor, Steve. Mm -hmm. That was the idea that I had in mind when <laughs> medical school and uh, life keeps pulling me back to New York over and over through the years. But I thought the ER was a, a, a good thing to do for a few years because if you're a country doctor, you want to be able to deal with whatever comes through the door. Mm. So my time was split between two ERs that were part of one medical center here in the city, one of which was a level one trauma center and the other one an acute ER, but not a trauma center. And um, I would not trade those five years for anything. And then I worked as a traveling doctor for seven years, mostly upstate. I worked in the second smallest ER in the state with two beds. And then I worked at a wonderful place at Champlain Valley Physicians Hospital for a number of years. I would fly up. They would fly me up for a four-day gig. And then I would go back every four to six weeks. And I worked a little bit in Indian health in Arizona as well. In any case, it was um, always my intention to study nutrition more deeply before starting a practice and acupuncture. So in 95, I left my full-time ER gig and I gave myself what I call my self-styled sabbatical, which actually ended up lasting about a year and a half or two years and took, took, nutrition courses, botanical medicine, and my acupuncture certification. And I didn't think I was coming back to New York. I was looking for a farm clinic, actually. But a series of coincidences and synchronicities pulled me back to the city once again. And I've had the practice here for 22 years. So um, functional medicine is a term that was coined by Jeffrey Bland in 1991. And the notion being that it's based on physiology, right? Anatomy is the study of, fun of structure and physiology, the study of function in the body. I have taken some seminars with Jeffrey Bland, but I never took the full IFM course because by the time I became familiar with it, I had already taken a series of nutritional seminars and I'm, I'm an eternal student as it is. And so, you know, we're, we're learning every day. And, um, but the, for people who are, who might be listening, who aren't, familiar with the term and what does this mean? It is, it is approaching the body, health and disease with an understanding of its functions and before introducing invasive methods or pharmacologic therapy, um, assisting the body's native detoxification pathways, uh, 
removing pro-inflammatory factors mm -hmm. in the diet and in the environment where possible, balancing micronutrients, usually, usually by increasing them, but sometimes people have nutrient excess, mm -hmm. supporting the gut, and then treating inflammation naturally where possible. And when we talk about supporting detoxification, we're talking about uh, foods and foods, herbs, supplements to assist the liver, the kidney, the lymphatic system. Let me say that you know the food where 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 supplementation, where nutrient balance is concerned, the food we eat is the first most important thing, no doubt about it. However, um, and I, I will often start people with the diet first and with just a modicum of supplementation, but I do hold to the belief that we all need to take a minimum of supplementation these days, no matter how balanced the diet is, because given the the um, depletion of the soils, trans transportation methods, cooking, all of this. Mm -hmm. um, so, so that is, you know, functional medicine in a nutshell. There are other natural medicine approaches. You've probably heard the term European biological medicine, mm -hmm. the tenets of which are very, very similar they draw from a broader broader swath of alternative therapies that are less used and less known in this country. Mm -hmm. um, you've heard the term orthomolecular medicine. That was a term coined in 1968 by Linus Pauling. And the notion there was um, restoration and equilibration of the body's function and health through substances natural to the body. Mm -hmm. So so that's a brief introduction. Let me say this also, that all those years working in the ER, um, it was all too obvious that so much of what I was seeing was preventable illness. Mm -hmm. And um, um, the, the gunshot victims and the car accidents and the heart attacks and the stroke get the headlines but the vast majority of people who come to an er have conditions that could be treated in an, in a regular outpatient setting or in an urgent care many of them um, but so um the quantity of um of preventable illness also impelled me further toward this. One of those ERs was an inner city ER. Mm. And, um, you know, I was also, um, I always took time to, a little bit of time to speak with people about their diets, but um, it was a community that was very receptive to mm -hmm. prevention but they had very few resources for it. So, yeah. That's a great answer. That, that kind of brings me back to my physiology class from when I was in school and first learning about type two diabetes mellitus, which I had only learned of from 
various hearing about it from people in my family and friends' families, and almost thinking of some sort of doomsday scenario where if you would have asked me, I would have said it was not treatable, uncurable, and then getting and studying some of the physiology research that was present at the time, and I'm sure is still relevant today, that diet and exercise has an unbelievable cure rate that, that if diet and exercise were a pill, it would be the most successful pill for specifically type two diabetes mellitus. That started to change over my mind. The other thing that's interesting that I think you'll find interesting was my fifth professor was talking about energy restriction or calorie restriction, eating or feeding all at that time. And we all looked at him like he was nuts, but he was so far ahead of the curve. I see a lot of overlap between what he was teaching us and now what it seems like the USC Longevity Center with Dr. Walter Longo yeah. is, has been saying for a while, but now is starting to um, become more mainstream. I guess when Gwyneth Paltrow gets her hands on someone and tells the world about them, people listen. So that's as far as it's really nice to hear that your impression is exactly what seems to be the steady impression over time that so many things through the appropriate um, prevention lens can be helped out and don't, don't they don't have to be problems but I think the health IQ unfortunately and that's that's everyone's fault is low enough that it's nice that you and I are getting to have a conversation right now that can be shared to everyone that'll hopefully help some people with prevention and raise the health IQ just a little bit. So that leads me to my next question. What is the most important thing that we can do to support our whole health? Sure. Um, and I love that you mentioned the intermittent fasting diet. I'm a big fan and uh, I love uh, uh, Walter Longo's work. I, I brought intermittent fasting to the practice some years ago and only more recently the fasting mimicking diet and as important as diet is and as much as it is central to the evaluation that I do with people and their treatment program if you ask me what's the most important thing I'm not going to talk about food I'm going to talk about breathing yeah, I love it. <laughs> yes, the breath. And you're the exercise expert. I am not an exercise expert, although I do exercise, but I'll make a true confession here that you don't know about me. I can't stand going to gyms. <laughs> That's okay. Do you dance? I, I climb stairs, I do a ton of walking, and yes, I love to dance, and I often recommend dancing, totally, totally. Right. I, I was a yoga bum before I went to medical school, and I've fallen away from the half of yoga, but other yoga practices have stayed with me through the years. And um, I had... Um, and, and the yogic breathing exercises. I have a collection of books on the shelf, many, many books on breathing. Of course, the books don't do any good if you don't practice, right? But I, I do have a breathing practice. 
that I have used over the years. Some, some years, some periods of time, I've spent more time doing them and other times less, but I, 95, 95% of people on the street are not breathing well. Right? All you have to do is sit in a New York coffee shop facing the street and watch people go by and you can, you can see this very readily. And when I do the physical exam and I ask people to take a deep breath, invariably they take a huge, exactly, that's it. Yes. I had the pleasure of meeting Alexander Lowen about, oh gosh, maybe 15 years ago. He was the father of bioenergetic therapy and a student of Wilhelm Reich. And a friend of mine took me up to his home in Southern Connecticut to meet him. He was in his late 90s at the time and quite surly and charming. And he said to me, you doctors these days, he said, you don't know good health. You don't know good health when you see it. And I said, why is that, Dr. Lowen? And I thought he was going to talk about the diet. Mm -hmm. He said, because there's very little around, you don't know what it is. And I said, why is that? And he said, because nobody knows how to breathe. And then I asked him, why is that? Yes. Mm -hmm. And he said, because by the time most kids are seven years old, they've shut down their diaphragms. Mm -hmm. Being told one too many times, I don't want to hear it. Stop crying, be quiet. Mm -hmm. I had not had that insight before. And yeah. um, anybody listening, if you are around little kids, usually under the age of four, you'll see this wonderful mm -hmm. diaphragmatic expansion, the breath rising from the, from the lower chest upward, mm -hmm. right? So, so, if you're not breathing well, you're not metabolizing well. And you can have the best diet in the world. And additionally, when you drop and expand the diaphragm fully, you're putting a powerful stretch on the vagus nerve, which is the main nerve of the parasympathetic nervous system. And that will help to lower stress in the solar plexus. It can be very helpful for people with hiatal hernia, with gastritis. It's going to increase parasympathetic tone, lower sympathetic tone. It helps with sleep. It helps with mood. It helps with 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 um, uh, reduce stress levels and even even with uh, blood pressure lowering. So um, and. I do often recommend the intermittent uh, workout, the interval workout. Nice. No, no. I'm going to refer people to you, Steve, Feel for an exercise program. Happy to. I'm glad you talked about breath because it's something that, if you look through these, that that's a good common tone. And, and I like it for two reasons. So one, to, to talk to anyone who's out there who's not familiar with sympathetic versus parasympathetic tone, I'm going to talk about that a little bit. So you're autonomic or your involuntary nervous system has two branches of it. One is your sympathetic nervous system, which is fight or flight. And the other is the parasympathetic system, which is your rest and digest. So if you want to picture what it would feel like to have the sympathetic nervous system ticked on, 
pretend like someone just trapped a tiger into the room and right then and there, you're gonna know exactly what that feels like. The blood is gonna go away from your organs into the muscles, your heart rate's gonna go up, your respiratory rate's gonna go up. And that's exactly what should be happening in that moment when a tiger has been dropped into your room. It shouldn't be what's happening when you're at your work, but we'll get back to that in a second. The parasympathetic system is your rest and digest. That's your energy saving. If you are on a deserted island and your body was just trying to stay alive as long as possible. It would take all the blood out of your skeletal muscles. You would put it back into your organs. It would try and preserve everything. Your heart rate would go down. Your respiratory rate would go down. And it's in an energy saving state. That's a really great place to be in when we're doing things that we don't require a lot of energy for, or specifically when there aren't threats present. And so it's really common, unfortunately, and I'm not trying to put down our professional choices or the location that we live in, but I think it's worth mentioning that most of the people who are listening to this right now perhaps have a job that can cause them stress and it's not something, I'm not saying that it's not real. I'm just saying that it's may not necessary. You may not need to perhaps be in that state all the time. And then also that it's really important that in addition to the stresses where we live in New York, there's a lot of noises occurring all the time. And our primitive portions of our brain, frankly, don't know that that's just a cabbie being mad at someone who's jaywalking, they're perceived as threat and understandably we, we get clicked in. I love breathing for a couple of reasons because I think it has branched out. Um, speaking about exercise and then speaking about just relaxing here, you obviously wanna have two different breathing patterns. So teaching people to breathe for the task that is in front of them is really important. So we teach people how to use that breath to stabilize specifically the trunk. So as you discussed before, when you see that nice belly breath occurring, that means that the rib cage is stacked up on top of the pelvis so that instead of that breath having to uh, work that much harder to raise the rib cage off of the lungs, you're doing a good job of having the diaphragm come down, which is gently moving some of the organs pushing down into that pelvic floor and spreading out into the rest of that trunk. That spread out is the good way to think about if you're exercising, imagine you wanted stability here, think about an empty Coke can versus a full Coke can. If you have that good ability to get the diaphragm working correctly and have that rib cage stacked over that pelvis, when you breathe down and your organs have to move because of it, you're filling that Coke can and that's a lot stronger than an empty Coke can. The other thing is when you're breathing and even when we spoke about it, which is really nice, it gives you something to focus on. Now talking about mindfulness practices, if you take them and if you take meditation down to its absolute lowest form, it is the ability to focus. It can be the focus on a mantra, it can be a focus on a flame, or it can be focused on a breath. And I think the reason that it's good for us to recommend breathing and perhaps having that focus be on the breath is because of exactly what you said, that gentle stroking of the vagus nerve. For everyone out there who's listening, picture that vagus nerve as an extension of your central nervous system. 
that you can gently stroke and will gently calm you down. It can really only have that effect. So it's really nice to hear you talk about breathing because it is one of the most important, important things that we can do to shift our body into the state that it should naturally be in. And we like to recommend it along with a mindfulness or meditation practice, because then you get double bang for your buck. You're training your body to breathe a little bit better. You're stroking the vagus nerve. You're learning how to focus. You're calming down the amygdala. It's all coming together real nice. So that's awesome. I'm really happy to hear you say that. Anything else you want to add on to that before we move on to the next question? Yeah, I, I do not have the luxury of time. I haven't created a workshop vehicle to really spend the time as intentionally as I would like to in the way that you do working on the breathing exercises. I, I, I will lead people through one or another breathing exercise and I give them printed material, three different handouts of three of three breathing exercises to get things moving. And I tell people, you know, to just practice in small, small bites, five minutes, five minute increments, aiming for 20 minutes twice daily. And eventually it will, it will open this up and carry over into other times of the day. Um, I like, yeah, yeah we, we, I know it sounds like an odd thing to recommend an app on a phone, which is the source of so many stress, but we link to Headspace on our, uh, we have a referral code for Headspace on our website. Um, I think it does a really good job of maybe not just the full um, teaching how to breathe, but I'm just going to tell you right now, breathe in through your nose, deep down into your groin to expand your belly and your back. Congratulations. Now you know how to breathe. It's all great. Carry <laughs> that toward the mindfulness and meditation training in Headspace, and you'll be solid gold. So moving on to our next question. In terms of minimizing COVID severity, other than social distancing and hand washing, what can we do? So let me say this also to the audience. Um, I, I want to make a disqualifying statement because you gave the very catchy title to tonight's yeah, interview. Yeah. And I, I, I want to make no pretense that anything I'm recommending is a prevention for COVID or a treatment for COVID. But things that we can do to hedge our bets and to minimize our risk, yes. So um, I, um, I, until the pandemic, I'm a subway gal. I commute by subway. And I was on the subway one cold day in December. And I think I was the only person in the train with a hat and gloves. And um, I always noticed how many mouth breathers are on the train. And um, yeah, in any case, um, when we breathe through the nose, we're, we're filtering, warming, and humidifying the air before it goes into the lungs. So what I think is a very poignant aspect of this pandemic is that plagues and pandemics have been with us from the beginning of time. And some of them are introduced through the bloodstream. Some of them are introduced through 
the GI tract, like typhoid outbreaks in the past, and some through the respiratory tract. And I think that it's mm, there's a metaphor here that the point of interest for this global pandemic has been through the respiratory passages. And I think among many opportunities in this is the opportunity to help people focus on the breath, right? And so, um, yeah, I, so proper breathing is undoubtedly going to, going to increase one's defenses. Um, early on, for people who were reading the alternative news, there was a lot about zinc, um, about vitamin D. And what came to light later, um, in large part through autopsy studies, is that the pathology of, of this coronavirus is largely one of what is referred to as the endothelial bed of the body. Endothelium um, is the very uh, fine layer of cells lining many of the body's tissues, especially blood vessels and lymphatic vessels. And in some cases we're talking about just one cell layer mm -hmm. between inside and outside, mm -hmm. right? And the, and the endothelium is most abundant, um, most abundant in the vessels, mm -hmm. but also um, it, it, it's interstice in everything. Mm -hmm. What is a, What is an alveolus? What is the air sac? But capillaries, which interface between the outside, the air we breathe, and the inside, right? And um, <clears throat> a lot of, I'm sure all your listeners heard or read about the ACE2 receptors, which were thought to be a big player in this. And the ACE2 receptors are um, an enzyme, a protein, which also is present in many different tissues of the body, but especially expressed in the lungs, in the small intestine, especially, and in the, in the renal bed, in the kidneys. And lo and behold, vitamin D and zinc both play a crucial role in supporting endothelial function. So um, two papers that came out that I don't think got the attention they deserved were on proportionality of, of uh, correspondence between vitamin D levels and COVID severity. Lower levels, higher risk, worse outcomes. Mm -hmm. And we also heard 
that 80% of people affected here in New York City were from the minority population. And I would venture that vitamin D levels are not being checked regularly mm. in the minority clinics. And even there, e even, even in, in um, orthodox medical practices, orthodox private practices, different medical communities have very different understanding of what an optimal blood test is comprised of, okay? When you get a lab report and on the right-hand column, there's something which is uh, the, the ranges, reference interval or reference ranges for whatever analyte is being looked at. Understand that that is a 95% confidence interval. Mm. It's not typically flagged. The red lettering isn't there unless it's outside the 95% range. But we don't want to be at 94%. We don't want to be at 99% necessarily, maybe for some things. But we want to be in the upper half of that range, typically. Right? And so um, Quest changed their reference range for vitamin D greater than 30 used to be their point of demarcation nanograms per liter. Mm -hmm. And recently they changed it to 30 to 100. They set mm -hmm. an upper limit, which means, okay, if that's the 95% confidence interval, but I can tell you most people are not in there. I looked at Australian studies. The Australians have focused a lot more on vitamin D, probably because of the issues with, with the sun exposure. Mm -hmm. And so um, what I refer to as the Australian surfer range, 42 to 65 mm -hmm. is what I take as an optimal range. Mm -hmm. There are people who have made the argument for super physiologic levels, for pushing the vitamin D to 120, 150. I don't get it. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean it's wrong, but I don't understand it. But Australian surfers in the prime of life getting maximal sun exposure levels from 42 to 65, mm -hmm. I think is great. And the two studies that came out, um, one of them was based on serum levels. One was based on autopsy studies in tissue levels. Okay, so... Um, Vitamins are drivers of enzymatic reactions. And um, um, vitamin D is a fat-soluble vitamin. And twice in 22 years, I've seen people who didn't tolerate higher levels of vitamin D. Thank goodness I picked it up quickly and the situation was solved. You know, but... Um, you know, we don't, a lot of people have a mentality, and I think it's a very American, a very American attitude, which has its charm, right? But the, if a little bit of something is good, then more is even better. Not true. We, we want to aim for moderation, right? We love superlatives as Americans. The best hamburger, the World Series, right? And B12 is good for you. Just take 
take as much as you can tolerate. No, no. I am a proponent for intravenous vitamins, wisely chosen at intervals. Some of the orthodoxy would say, oh, expensive urine. No, but you're pushing metabolic pathways when you're giving these higher doses. Mm -hmm. And so um, zinc, zinc is involved, how was it, There's three, over 3,000 zinc-related proteins, three, about 3,000 are encoded by the human genome. Right. And so it's not as broadly involved in organs as, say, for example, B12, mm -hmm. uh, which participates in over 150 metabolic pathways, maybe not even as many as zinc, but has very direct impacts uh, and expression in the brain and the peripheral nervous system and the upper GI tract and the, and the bone marrow, so on and so forth. But um, um, the more I read about zinc, the more I was just absolutely flabbergasted by how important the interface is. And when we're, when we're speaking about integrity of vessels, mm -hmm. Everything is perfused, right? It's this very, very fine web woven through all our tissues. When when we're talking about vitamin D, doc, and, and I know that I know you can have it, you can consume it from your food. I know that you can supplement it, and I also know about the sun. My impression of the literature was that the sun is a significantly more efficient way to get your vitamin D that Correct. much more efficient. However, however, yeah. how much sun are any of us getting these days? Yeah, no, I know. You know? And uh, uh, I absolutely, that's, you're absolutely right that it is more efficient, but um, you know, I've checked levels in the fall after people were out on the beach or outdoors a lot, and I do not see these robust levels. Some people, rarely I see people who are not taking supplementation who have levels in the 40s, rarely. Maybe some genetic endowment that they have, that they, that they synthesize it, especially especially well, but I rarely see levels unsupplemented above 30, truly. Okay, so then if we, t if we take that, I'm, I'm gonna kind of like summarize wh where I feel like part of this is, but so in general, the sun is a superior method versus supplementation. I think where a lot of people get up, but not not sunlight through the window because the beneficial UV is that's a bummer. But yes, uh, yeah, <laughs> unfortunately. So okay, so so I think that where most people fall, and I can almost hear people's brains hearing what we're saying. We've all been, with good reason, petrified about skin cancer, and 
there's a bit of a vanity culture in the United States. I don't know if you've heard about it. And so people get very nervous that they're going to get sun and then they're going to end up looking older than they perhaps are. My impression was that obviously, if we had to make one statement, getting burned is a bad idea. Yeah. But having enough sunlight that you could getting sun that's sub burning that, that might even make the skin a little bit pink, but doesn't go into that burn range, um, perhaps could be more, could be beneficial. And then I guess I almost want to piggyback back that off is like people of color, do they end up, do, do they absorb it better or worse? And then that was my impression as well. And then kind of where do you fall on um, the line for then how much sun should we be getting? What, what would you tell someone if they asked you that, looking at the whole picture? Right. So I'm not endorsing, um, you know, deep suntans and sunburns. Uh, I'm glad you raised the question. Um, I don't remember what year it was that the um, Academy of Dermatology Raised the raised the red flag and talked about the hazards of sun exposure, and um, there's a fellow I can't remember his last name right now. It's on the tip of my tongue, but he created something called the Vitamin D Council, which is actually privately funded. And I heard him lecture about ten years ago, and it was really quite compelling. He scoured the literature for every reference on vitamin D and the triple threat of allergy, asthma, and autoimmune disease, mm -hmm. which has escalated over the last roughly 35 years, coincides with that announcement by the Academy of Dermatology as also kids were spending more time indoors on the computer. I mean, that was a little bit later, right? That's not 30. Well, maybe it is 30. Oh, gosh, it is 30 years. Anyway. <laughs> um, and so his, his, his uh, thesis was that this escalating um, rise of um, of those three conditions, autoimmune illness, uh, allergy, and asthma, correlated. And the vitamin D is hugely important to the lungs, hugely important to the lungs. So, you know, were our children, is, is vitamin D routinely checked by pediatricians? I would doubt it. I don't know, but I doubt it. Um, and I, it certainly wasn't routine in the 80s or the 90s. I'm willing to bet that. And so were tissue levels and serum levels of vitamin D lower than the generation before favoring the development of these illnesses? It's, it's a pretty compelling argument. But so... Um, so how many how many minutes of sunlight? Um, yeah, I. And what parts of the body are most responsive? Also, that's the other question. Um, and so, this is purely anecdotal. Steve, you know, it has to be weighed individually. If somebody has a family history of melanoma or squamous mm -hmm. cell, obviously they're going to take. 
because the the sunblock it was it was the announcement by the academy of dermatology and the introduction of the sunblocks and the yep. sunblocks do block to the extent that the vitamin d synthesis declines yes so you know some some skin i do not so african americans for example do run lower levels mm -hmm. of vitamin d and one would think that being that black is more absorptive and white is more reflective although the skin tones are not exactly white or exactly black but nonetheless darker tones yeah one would think that people of african descent or or other dark-skinned peoples would have higher levels it turns out not to be the case so so i'm not sufficiently versed to know sure. there's probably some some other um inverse correlation and advantage there and i i i don't know sure then sure. could you tell could me you, a little bit i think we I think talked about, about COVID and vitamin d could you talk to about vitamin d in general like you you mentioned a few things but what is its function in the body why is it so important why why even if we weren't talking about covid would it probably make our top five questions anyway Right. Let me just, I, I'm going to, um, I'll come back to that question. Let me just say, um, you know, case reports hold no water in the annals of medicine. And uh, I'm just going to cite a series of two, one of whom was a patient who was of South Indian descent, who had a lot of upper GI distress and could never get her vitamin D level above 20. Uh, to her great dismay. And the other was somebody of Northern Italian descent with whom I'm acquainted. I am not her doctor, but also said she could never get her vitamin D up. Don't ask me where I heard this. It was at least 35 years ago. I scoured the internet looking for a reference and I could not find it. But I said to both of these women, and both of them took sun and they couldn't raise their vitamin D levels. I said, for 10 minutes only, put your palms directly to the sun. The vitamin D levels normalized for no both. Way. Yeah, I don't know where I came up with this. I have a vague recollection that I heard it somewhere. Maybe it was one of the Indian gurus with whom I kept company. I do not remember, but okay. So, so the, the vitamin, it was not until, until this pandemic that I realized how important vitamin D is to the vasculature. But, you know, everybody knows it's important for bone development and bone density. Um, but it was about, I, I date things by where I was living and working at the time. It, I think it was about 1990, um, 
798 when vitamin D hit the papers in a big way for the first time with respect to its importance to metabolic issues, to uh, prevention and treatment of in the adult onset diabetes, to cancer. Obviously, I mean, we're not saying that it's a, a solo treatment for, for, for diabetes, but it's another factor in the equation to cancer prevention, to obesity, to yeah, all of these things. And, and as I say, it was only recently that I became aware of just how important it is to the vasculature. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, and, okay. and to, and to lung health as well. Nice. Thank you for giving such a robust explanation. I appreciate it. So the final of our five, and then maybe we'll add in a little bit more. We'll go to some Q&A. But the question I think a lot of people are asking, and I can ask this question, and I don't know why anyone thinks as a physical therapist that works in a boxing gym, I would possibly have a good answer for this or be qualified to answer this. But should I get an antibody test? Doc, talk to us. Gosh. <laughs> yeah. Um, so if you, antibody tests are currently being discouraged by the authorities in the absence of um, extenuating risks, meaning you yourself may not be in a risk group. You may not have had a contact or be experiencing symptoms, but you're going to visit your aged parents um, and you want to make sure you haven't been infected or you were on a subway train in New York and you're going out to the country to stay with your parents or grandparents or what have you. So um, I, I love numbers and one of the problems in this pandemic from the beginning is we had very little denominator data mm -hmm. and the case fatality rate. Remember that expression early on? Yeah, they were predicting something on the order of 4%, maybe yeah. even higher. Right? And the case fatality rate, the Germans did some very good um, studies in a couple of different towns there and um, and then there was the controversy between should we be looking at case fatality or um, infection fatality rate right and meaning in any case the the it's still, it's still an open question. How many people out there in the population have been actually infected because only people at greater risk were tested or people expressing symptoms, right? And the current estimate, the most recent estimate I read for New York City was that roughly 20% of the population has been infected. Um, um, of, for every antibody test out there, uh, for all the antibody tests out there, only about 
um, only about five, five to ten percent have been approved by the FDA, and um, the two, the two tests that are available commonly here in New York now through Quest, LabCorp, and BioReference are the Abbott Lab test through Quest and LabCorp and the Roche test through BioReference. And the accuracy of those tests is quite high, but um, sensitivity and specificity, the, the, true, uh, the true positive and the true false rate is quite high for, for both of those. But um, you know, I um, I generally encourage people to have an antibody test, uh, especially if they're here in the city. Not all insurance is, is paying for it at this point, but if it's properly coded, mm, I think there's a good bet. I found out today that one patient was quoted $50 for the antibody test. So, um, yeah, it's it's one of the most common questions that comes up. I will say this, that I've run about um, maybe 25 antibody tests. Mm -hmm. I did nine D, um, RNA nasal swabs early on in mid-March. And two of those people were very symptomatic, young men had had people in the company who had been identified as having COVID um, and their tests were negative. And the one patient who was positive for the nasal swab was minimally expressing symptoms and um, in his late 80s has been well throughout. His antibody test was negative. So now we're not sure, was it a false positive RNA test or a false negative antibody test, right? Or was it a true positive, but it was not a strong infection and the antibody level had declined so much in five weeks that it wasn't being picked up. So, you know, um, but two of the 25 roughly patients who've had antibody tests, um, three have tested positive, positive. Two of them had confirmed positive nasal swabs. Mm -hmm. Happily, nobody had to go to the hospital. Everybody was treated outpatient. Um, the patient who had the longest, roughest course at home happened to have blood type A. So increased vulnerability of people with blood type A came out of China in December, and there have been a couple of other publications on this. She and her husband, both type A blood, both infected, but she had a much rougher course with it. Um, uh, the, uh, one other patient was, was in Amsterdam um, in late February in early March and was convinced that the illness she got there was COVID and everybody in the family became infected when she returned, everybody ultimately did well. Um, and then another patient who was infected presumably by, by somebody who lived in her hallway and the, 
another resident in her building who she passed in the hallway. However, the important point is a whole bunch of other patients were sure they had been infected and had varying degrees of respiratory symptoms in December, January, February, traveled by air, they tested negative. So, you know, there was a lot of flu going around also, it seems. Yeah, the power of suggestion is always amazing to me. In myself, yeah. I'm not cooking on anybody. I, I encourage, I'm going to say this, even I encourage people to have the antibody test for the greater, for the common good. Yeah. I did. I did my. Uh, I. I. I tested myself. I, it's sort of a mixed blessing to test negative. Yeah, you know, I mean, I kind of. I kind of would have liked to find out that I'd been infected and have the antibodies. Although we still don't know whether that is going to confer prolonged protection or not. But yeah. for the greater good. If people have access, if they're willing to go, it seems that the, you know, the risk of getting infected, going to the lab station, is relatively minimal, because I think we we really still have inadequate denominator data. Yeah. So that's my position. I like your position, Doc. I'm going to ask you now some of the questions. So I promise that I would ask you these questions on the air. I also am going to say that we're going to try and get to every question that's already been in the chat. So, you know, take your time. There's no rush whatsoever. Going long, it is all good. But I'd like to ask you these two questions and then I'll start to read that are in the chat. So this comes in from Shelly, lovely human. What advice does Dr. Cook have for people with high cholesterol? Besides the obvious, what things can be done to find out why I keep making so much cholesterol? I have no interest in statins, but since 9-11, and it could be September of 2011, um, and onset of few autoimmune issues and recovery from thyrotoxicosis, which affected my liver enzyme balance at the time, my LDL levels have continued to rise. HDL is high and triglycerides are normal. Now, Doc, you can see that perhaps in the chat because I know I just threw a lot of information. If you can you, it's okay. Actually, I don't see it. But can you ask Shelly two things? How old, how old is she and how high is the HDL? So Shelly wrote this in, but Shelly's in her 50s. And okay. um, I don't know about her HDLs. Does she know if it's in the 70s, 80s, 90s, over 100? I'm not okay. sure. Let's, let's go with over 100 okay. if that makes Okay, sure, sure. Back to her. Okay, so um, um, first of all, if Shelly, Shelly, if you haven't had a complete uh, fractionated lipid panel, that's something you should ask your doctor for, including, with, including the... Um, apolipoprotein B level, uh, the lipoprotein A as well. Um, and um, that will, will give some idea. And if you have an old one from 10 years or 20 years before for comparison, that would be great, okay? Mm -hmm. um, if it was late onset, 
in your 50s. It's probably not familial hyperlipidemia. Familial hyperlipidemias, typically, they must be treated with agent therapy, medication or an herbal medication, okay? Um, but um, women in their 50s, if they have a a genetic predisposition for for high cholesterol, not necessarily what's termed the familial hyperlipidemia, but nonetheless, uh, if one of the parents has a history of high high cholesterol, especially later in life, in menopause, uh, most women's cholesterol will go up to some degree, some more than others, because estrogen is a downstream estrogen and progesterone or downstream uh, breakdown products of cholesterol metabolism. And when there's no more estrogen being produced, the upstream product will increase the cholesterol in this case. And um, so, so, and the HDL, the good cholesterol, everything in life is a matter of degree. Right? You can have too much of a good thing and not enough of a bad thing. Good and bad cholesterol are somewhat misnomers. Okay, the the LDL is termed the good, but if you depress LDL too much and you drop total cholesterol too much, you decrease downstream steroid synthesis. And so, you know, a man in his forties who's total cholesterol is being dropped to 110 because of cardiovascular risk may find that his testosterone levels also drop in the wake of that. Okay. But, and I've never, I rarely see anybody with a total cholesterol lower than 140 with a normal energy level because adrenal steroids will also be lowered. Um, HDL, the good cholesterol, you don't want to see it higher than 80. And when you see levels rising toward 90, 100, I think the highest I've ever seen was about 127. Higher than 80, it is an inflammatory marker because it is a carrier protein for prostaglandin. So, so you know, I would... Um, and I, I hear that you don't want to take statins. I don't have an absolute opposition to statins. I look for, um, it's, it's, gosh, this is a whole session in itself, you know, right. But we can, Steve, I yep. can certainly say this, that a proper exercise program is vital to maintain. <laughs> yeah. The, 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 Microcapillary bed and the right. So Perfect. all right, we'll we'll leave it that. Now I'm gonna ask you the second question. And you you almost touched on this, so I, it's interesting, but I think that this is a question that a lot of people have, and I'm glad that one person specifically asked it. Uh, do you have a recommendation for an approach to take while working with a traditional internist who does not practice integrative? Do uh, I ever do I ever how almost the, the nature of the question is how do you coach a traditional internist to um, how to branch the subject with them to try and get them to work 
for with you for better alternative treatments. I understand you can't just you can just leave and find someone else on insurance if you can, but sometimes that's not the case. So coach someone up on how to coach their internist oh, to be a little bit more into the functional medicine. Is I believe the nature of the question. Yeah, it's a really good question, and it's a delicate subject. Yeah, uh, I believe that uh, I believe that all doctors, and I'll speak especially for internists, family practitioners, pediatricians, um, generalists. Okay, we're I I believe that. We're all trying to do the best that we know how for our patients. And doctors typically have very fragile egos. We cannot know it all. We don't know it all. And uh, there is very little nutritional education in medical school. The, The main nutritional education is that of diseases of excess and deficiency. Within the public health program, there was a dedicated nutrition course. But um, um, so how does the patient broach it with their internist? I think rather, (laughs) I'm gonna say, rather than trying to lecture the doctor, ask the doctor, what do you think? Invite the doctor's opinion. Doctor, could you, could you tell me whether um, vitamin D could could play a part here in my asthma treatment? Um, yeah, it's a tricky question. I mean, I, I, I do not take primary care patients, Steve. I have a bunch of patients who are essentially primary care that I've worked with for a number of years, but I don't have the infrastructure to support primary care. Um, Although I I love it, you know, but that's a whole conversation in itself. Uh, um, but I I ask anybody who comes to see me to be sure that they have a doctor implant in insurance. And there's this very delicate dance that goes on between a number of my patients and their primary care doctors and what labs they're willing and not willing to order um, and some, I'm always willing to speak to any doctor who wants to talk to me. I'm very happy to talk. And I've, I've collaborated with a number of the specialists in the, in the care of a bunch of my patients. Um, it's tougher with other generalists. First of all, everybody's overwhelmed, um, you know, in terms of having the time to, to connect, but, um, I think every patient must be an advocate for themselves because we cannot know it all. Okay. And I have, my patients are very motivated for the most part. If there's one generalization I would make about the people who see me is they're a very motivated group of people who are proactive in their health. And I love that. And, uh, I'm often educated by my patients who bring handouts and this and that, right? They're, yeah. Look, it was, I think it was in 2000 that I went to the annual American College of Physicians meeting. 
And I am not exaggerating one bit when I tell you that one of the speakers said to a room of thousands of doctors daily at that time, the amount of research studies published in the world medical literature, we're not talking just of drug therapy, we're talking about journals of physiology, of nutrition, of phytotherapy, and including all the standard journals, was on the order of 20,000 a day, right? So we're each looking through our particular filter, right? So great answer. But but the tough point, the tough part I know that people have is getting their doctors to order certain blood tests that the insurance will not routinely cover. And you know, the insurance doesn't the insurance company doesn't want to see the doc that the doctor is is squandering, you know, hundreds of dollars on certain testing. It's interesting to me to see that during the pandemic, a lot of the labs are now letting people order blood tests on themselves, including mm -hmm. Quest, which creates mixed feelings for me, mixed feelings. But, you know, I feel that, you know, if people are willing to pay out of pocket for the testing, you know, there has to be somebody else looking at those tests with the patient because a patient is not going to know how to read those tests. Mm. Um, and it could be somebody assigned by the lab. That's what a lot of the labs are doing now, I guess, is, is, is paying readers to interpret the test for the patient. But believe me, um, you might well get two or three or four slightly different slants on some of the same results. Let me say this also, that I not uncommonly have patients who are here from out of country who don't have insurance or patients who are in the gap and don't have insurance. Um, Bioreference and now Quest will give 70% off the top for cash up front, 70%, 70% discount on the cost of the blood test, which reflects administrative costs. 70% is going toward administrative costs because paying 30%, the lab is still making a profit. That is really, really interesting and not wholeheartedly surprising. Um, let's get into our next question. Thank you, Doc. Um, can you, this is from Liliana, can you overdose on vitamin D? My mother has severe osteoporosis and takes 4,000 IU per day. Is that too much? She should get follow-up levels, but yes, you know, you can take too much vitamin D. You can, uh, you, it can be toxic. It can, um, I, as I say, I had one patient in 22 years who um, had, elevated liver enzymes. There was nothing else I could, uh, I could uh, attribute um, the elevation to. People can develop kidney stones with excessive vitamin D. So there, yeah, every, everything uh, has a potential hazard. Mm -hmm. Cool. Th thank you, Doc. Our next so question. Again, let me quote the optimal range, 42 to 65 
nanograms per liter. Okay. That's the typical unit, that's, so 42 to 65. So vitamin D 25 hydroxy. And although what you said earlier is true, that you know the, the vitamin D that we synthesize from the sun is, is more um, efficient, still the circulating vitamin D, D25 hydroxy, is doing the job and we can boost that through supplementation. Cool. All right. Thanks. The next question we have comes from Paul. I noticed your website has a section on the use of LDN, which I recently read has been used to help treat autoimmune disorders. Can you talk to if you think it's worth exploring someone with a thyroid disorder? If it's an autoimmune thyroiditis, it may be helpful. Um, I seldom have prescribed it for Hashimoto's thyroiditis, but um, the logic of the LDN, it's, it's, it's more complex than this, but the, the core of the uh, physiologic action is that taken, so naltrexone is an opiate receptor blocker, and um, if taken in the absence of exogenous opiates, as long as you're not on dilaudid or taking MS cotton, it will, in a fractional dose, it will boost endogenous opiate-like chemicals in the brain, endorphin and metencephalin, which have an anti-inflammatory action and as endorphin levels rise, which they should normally during sleep, it induces um, increased natural killer cell activity, which are typically 5% of the circulating white cells, which scavenge for virus and we believe nascent cancer cells. So, um, you know, what is causing the autoimmune thyroiditis in the first place, which is a tricky question, actually, it's going to bring me back to something that hit the news yesterday because William Jeffries, PhD, who wrote the book um, in the 1960s on safe uses of cortisol, said that if somebody develops thyroid antibodies after they start thyroid replacement, it denotes that there's an underlying adrenal fatigue. The adrenals are the platform which support thyroid function. And if somebody is being replaced, if somebody is hypothyroid and they're being replaced with thyroid in whatever form, but they feel less energy rather than more, then you have to investigate the adrenals. So yesterday, um, the news, uh, the headlines were around the dexamethasone right, for um, COVID in extremis. And they said, it was breakthrough for one third of critical COVID-19 patients. So dexamethasone is a synthetic adrenal steroid, a synthetic cortisone. Uh, cortisol is the native, the name of the native hormone. Cortisone is the um, the synthetic um, and dexamethasone, also known as decadron, is 50 times more potent 
than hydro, uh, hydrocortisone. Mm. So why am I talking this? Because so much comes back to the adrenals. Right? We think about the adrenals and we think primarily of cortisol, but the, the adrenals synthesize and release many different hormones, dihydroepiandrosterone, uh, epinephrine, uh, long, long list uh, of, of hormones and neurohormones secreted by the adrenals. What is the first best treatment for adrenal fatigue? Breathing, exercise, diet? I don't know, one of those three? I would put those two, three, and four, but yeah. adequate restorative sleep. Oh, okay. So yeah. sleep is number one, and then we'll sleep say- Number one, I, I, I would venture that excessive ex exercise drives down the adrenals, but sleep is hugely important. And you talked about mindfulness. I'm a big advocate also for some form of, whether it's meditation, whether it's prayer, or the candle flame, as you said, the breathing exercise, but learning to quiet the mind, mm -hmm. right? Because the research has demonstrated that just imagining all the horrible things that can happen, the body doesn't know the difference, right? right? all the systems are i see that a lot too and i think that the the seeing all the horrible things that can happen i think that a lot of people get caught in either resisting those feelings which can fuel that flame or trying to perhaps rationalize those feelings which can fuel that flame sometimes you just have to say this is scary and this too shall pass so that's my mindfulness education on the mind 101 let me let me say one more thing that yeah. cortisone was a breakthrough medically when it was first introduced and where all else fails mm -hmm. it's kind of surprising that this didn't come out sooner really um although um i know there was some earlier work um on maybe they were using prednisone early on i don't remember but when everything else fails, cortisone in some form is usually the stopgap measure that saves the day. Insulin-dependent diabetes at the extreme that no longer responds to medicine. Most of the autoimmune illnesses, many of the cancers, it's a very long, long list, inflammatory bowel diseases, which, you know, the action of any drug, any nutrient, any hormone is very variable depending upon dose, right? But nonetheless, the versatility of synthetic cortisone bespeaks the critical nature of our endogenous cortisol. Oh. Yes. Interesting. So, okay, so that's where sleep is so anything that would help you have non-excessive levels of cortisol i.e as you said the right amount of exercise reduces cortisol the wrong amount of exercise increases cortisol so oh that's really interesting so looking at it from exercise and then obviously sleep. again we want it in in a range we don't want it too low we don't want it too high 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 when um very high cortisol levels are used as a biomarker for major depression. Mm -hmm. When there's a doubt about 
whether this is a true depression or not, um, very often that will clinch the diagnosis. And just this is a question is just, I know that you would know more than just about anyone, but cortisol levels throughout the day can change. Is, does that ever, is that, one, is that true? And two, does that end up affecting the way that you would look at labs? Like, would you ever order an early, middle of the day, later day cortisol and see whether there's a decreasing cortisol level, which is what we would hope and expect, or an increasing level, which would be considered a reversal? Is that correct, one? And two, is that how you might approach it? Almost everything has a diurnal rhythm. And okay. so cortisol levels typically rise steeply through the morning. Ideally, let's say this, ideally they rise, um, they rise with the sun, they, they peak at midday, and then there's a gradual decline and then low at night. And people who are very wired in the late evening who can't get to sleep, um, excuse me, my dog is calling for attention. Oh, get in there. <laughs> he, he doesn't here too, so yeah. He doesn't understand what's going on. It's time for his evening walk. Anyway, um, so, um, so, um, yeah, so I, I often order the saliva cortisol test on people. Mm. Um, saliva testing has been, um, uh, verified by the research and so we just we just can't get a lot of the saliva tests in new york state uh i can get the 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 cortisol um the cortisol test in new york state but um the saliva is a lymphatic filtrate mm. so here's another um another thing to and, and in terms of cortisol levels i typically check morning blood tests. I rarely, rarely, rarely draw blood tests in the office because I want people to go usually fasting um, for morning blood tests. You know, if I'm going to order a blood test, I want to know how's their blood sugar, their hemoglobin A1C, their triglycerides, so on and so forth. You know, so I don't, I rarely draw blood in the office unless there's a reason to, but, um, about the, the saliva, another simple thing that people can do to help themselves in terms of uh, minimizing uh, inflammatory and infectious uh, overload uh, for lymphatic cleansing is the um, oil, the oil mouth rinse uh, with sesame or um, sesame, safflower, or coconut oil. I don't favor the coconut oil generally. Uh, to take a teaspoon or a tablespoon of oil, hold it in the mouth for 20 minutes, swish it about, and then spit it out. This comes to us from Ayurvedic medicine mm. and then later from European biological medicine. And the rationale is that there's various debris circulating uh, in the lymphatic system. There are breakdown products of all kinds of things circulating in the lymphatic system. And, and uh, much of that is washing out in the saliva. So you're damming the flow for those 20 or 30 minutes and then expelling it 
And if you do this daily for a period of time, I had one patient only in 22 years who told me they felt a lessening of their inflammatory pain as they as they did the saliva, the uh, oil swish. Very, very interesting. On the yeah. cortisol, we can show, this will be the last comment, but one other thing to mention with cortisol, and maybe this is uh, not proven in every lit literature, but I, I do believe it to be the case. Oxytocin, which is by you hugging that dog right there, is almost the best antidote to cortisol. If you can get your oxytocin levels up, your cortisol levels will go down. So it's nice to see you hugging that dog right there. <laughs> Moving on, moving on. Uh, You've been keeping me healthy through the pandemic. <laughs> so necessary, so necessary. Um, Liliana, um, best recommendation for a 75-year-old woman with severe osteoporosis? Weight-bearing. Yeah. Weight-bearing, and um, uh, I'm going to recommend a book by... Um, uh, now deceased, Anna Marie Colbin, C-O-L-B-I-N, um, who wrote a book about eating for healthy bones. And it's it sounds like primitive thinking, but bone stews. She wrote the book on it. And oh. she made a, you know, there's a compelling point that was made. A, a chicken bone, Oh, fresh chicken bone is very flexible. But if you put it in vinegar for a few days so that all the soft tissue components mm -hmm. are, are reduced, right? eliminated, and you have just the calcific portion of the bone, it's a very brittle bone. And the calcium alone doesn't support the, the supple components of the of the bone of the long bones for example all right those are other elements in the diet that a calcium supplement will not will not address in terms of in terms of bisphosphonate therapy when they did the study they found that fall risk decreased mm -hmm. but that the bone that was remodeled after bisphosphonate therapy was a more fragile bone but falls decreased so hmm. what does that mean you know fracture you know fracture risk excuse me not fall, fracture risk from falls decreased okay but the quality of the bone is not that of of the original bone so look at Anne marie colbin's book she has but i i, I was I was chastened with respect to weight bearing by a patient who I saw years ago who um, had reversed, she didn't completely reverse her osteoporosis, but she significantly improved her bone density through weight bearing. And she came to my office with ankle weights and wrist weights, but you need to do it with guidance because there's a real potential for tendon injury if you don't know what you're doing. Now, Doc, is that, you were talking about a time like a bone broth. Is, is it the nutrients that are given from the bone broth that are of benefit and or is it perhaps the reparative nature that might have 
on the gut. And, and you don't have to say one or the other. You could just say both. Good point. Yeah. I, I think it's both. Okay. I think it's both. Great. Yeah. Just, just curious myself. So cool. Let's move on to Christine's question. Um, I find it hard to breathe behind the mask. Can we doing more? Can we be doing more harm than good wearing masks? Boy, it's a great question. The only time I have a stuffy nose is when I wear the mask. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I would. Um, what? It's much harder to breathe with those N95s um, over a long period of time. And I would discourage anybody from using an N95. Mm. And um, I don't think you're doing uh, enduring ultimate damage. But um, um, I take my mask off at every opportunity. Did you hear? Did you hear that the, the mayor of San Francisco uh, um, has imposed a thirty-foot rule? Everybody is supposed to have their mask on within thirty feet of another human in the public arena. That I don't is know. Totally doing more harm than good. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, that's even. I I I, I don't think ultimate harm, but you know. You want to be changing the mask, washing the mask, because stagnant airflow is never a good thing. And using the same mask day in, day out is problematic as well. Okay. Do alternate nostril. One of the three exercises that I give to my patients is the alternate nostril breathing exercise. And I would encourage that as somewhat of a remedy. Got to love it. Great. Last yeah, time I have the filter, you know, for people who are working with other people outside the home, if they have an opportunity, getting a high quality air filter, getting the company to buy air filters to, to place around the office, I think is good. I just got one for my office that has a UV component as well. That, sound, that sounds great. One of my buddies went back to practice as an acupuncturist. Same thing. Windows open. UV filter, killing everything, do it, you know, masks on, face down. Everybody's trying to figure out how to make this work. So our last question here is a, a doozy, Christine. Great job. I really like it. What are the worst inflammatory foods in the diet which should be avoided? If you ever wanted a loaded question for your final question. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, wow. Good question, Christine. Well, I'm sure you have opinions, yeah. So... Gluten may be inflammatory for many people, if not most, and not for others. Uh, but um, certainly proce processed foods, foods which are, um, I, I think the biggest offenders are, are gluten grains, uh, corn, soy in some cases. Um, and um, certainly refined sugars, sugar and, you know, f fruit is high in sugar, but are we going to tell people not to eat fruit? No, no, you know, there's, you know, but it's a whole package, right? When you eat that whole fruit, there may be circumstances in a diabetic that you only want them to eat 
very little fruit in the course of a week and low on the glycemic index, whether it's blueberries or other berries, you know, but I, I don't hold to the notion that, um, um, that gluten is bad for everybody. No, not at all. But, um, but you don't know if you're gluten sensitive until you've abstained for at least six weeks, six to eight weeks. And the other thing is that mo most of the gluten that Americans eat is leavened, right? It's with yeast. And there are many people that the problem may be the yeast rather than the gluten itself. If they're eat, if, if they're, if their gluten is in the form of, you know, whether it's matzah or other unleavened gluten or a complex gluten, you know, so, so there's a lot of innuendo here. Um, but, uh, you know, there's certain, certainly, um, I mean, I only named a few of the offenders, you know, um, all the refined carbohydrates are typically problematic, white rice, so on and so forth. And so I start everybody out with an elimination diet. My diet is less prohibitive than many because I work mostly with people who are working New Yorkers with lots of demands on their time. And I feel that you know, a more moderated elimination diet can give people a starting point that's livable. Now, I have become a big fan over the past year of the fasting mimicking diet and the prolon. Yeah, terrific. And, can you talk uh, about that for just a minute? Because I, I, I'll just piggyback off of what you said. One, I think that people like to say like, I can or I can't eat this food. And the hormone response that can come from eating a smaller or a larger portion or having that food coupled with something else can be vastly different. Um, Christine, and we're talking about gluten and things like that, there is some research out there, and Dr. correct me if I'm wrong, that perhaps maybe it's the gluten in and of itself, but also the fermentability of gluten. Like gluten is a higher FODMAP food. So it could mean that the people are having more trouble with the fermentability due to what's going on in their small intestine. So it, it, it's, it's it, it, there's a reason why I think we talk about gluten a lot because I think a lot of people end up having trouble with it, but perhaps from different angles. And that's worth just mentioning. Also, when you eat that food, if you end up eating food at two o'clock in the morning, you're going to end up having a different response than if you eat something at 2 p.m. So can you talk about, we, we tend to say at least a 12-hour fast every night. Um, my impression is that as you go longer than that, you can perhaps increase gallstones, even though maybe there may be some other health benefits, fine. Um, entertain a fasting mimicking diet two or three times throughout the year to get that full autophagy or cleaning out those bad cells. But how do you look at um, the, the body as far as the timing of when you're eating on a micro and on a macro level? Let, let me backtrack for a moment with respect to the gluten. Uh, mm -hmm. American wheat is hyper hybridized. It's not genetically modified. Mm -hmm. And um, it is, um, it has a much higher protein content than European wheat, uh, which is referred to as soft wheat. We have hard wheat, they have soft wheat. 
and the term hard and soft is a function of the protein content of the gluten grain itself. The soft wheat is much better for fluffy French pastry than our wheat. And um, a lot of that hyper-hybridization hyper occurred in the last mm, 60, 70 years, 60 years. Um, and that has induced a lot of this gluten intolerance as well, it seems. And in terms of the fasting mimicking, um, you know, I, I'm... There's no prototypical diet, right, Steve? And there's no one way to do things. Uh, with the fasting mimicking, um, typically it's a 14 to 15 hour fast from the evening meal to the to the next morning meal. And um, you know, I it's important to it's great to get information on the internet to read the books to listen to the experts but ultimately the most important thing is for everybody to take the time in the day to drop deep within themselves to trust themselves to trust their own bodies and um you know so much saturation by the media i think has has uh, robbed certain people of their own self counsel shall we say and so um you know i'm um yeah, I've I've not endorsed the um, eighteen hour fast, but I'm I'm curious to try it myself. Sure. Uh, to see, you know, but um, you know, we were. I don't know about you, but I heard uh, um, as a young person that you know, breakfast like a king and uh, dinner like a pauper, and uh, but dinner was was our meal together when I was growing up and it was a full course dinner and it was the time that we spoke and conversed over dinner and I, I loved what's better in life than sitting around a table with friends and family, right? And so, but I've, I've discovered my mother despaired that I often ran out in the morning without eating breakfast, but I, I feel quite well without breakfast and eating until not eating until early afternoon, but it took me a little time to get there. Yeah. I don't know that I really answered your question, Steve. But I think you did. I think you answered all my questions and even so much more. I thank you so much. Um, can you just tell us either add anything you want, but definitely let people know where they can find you. Okay. And then I'll, I'll take it home from here, but this has been really lovely doc. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Steve. I really, you, you put me enormously at ease and you're a great uh, interviewer. And I, I love to hear what you had to say about the mindfulness and the exercise and the breathing and uh, great. So the best yeah. Hmm? How can people find you? Just to send them to your website. Where do you? How do they you? They can Google me. They can Google me, and it's Cook with an E on the end. C O O K E. And I am in the. I am back in the office since two weeks ago, but I am working uh, half the time remotely, um, and I'm doing new consults remotely. Also, this is a big shift. Happily. The medical societies and the insurance companies liberalize the rules where remote consultation is concerned. 
in function of this pandemic, and I hope it will continue. But um, I do miss the engagement in real time, but I'm getting used to video consults, and there are a number of things that we do in the office that cannot be done remotely. And of course, you know, um, my initial consultation rarely, rarely includes a physical diagnosis because an hour and two hours goes by very quickly just taking a comprehensive history. And so I typically, unless the person has an acute complaint, I typically do not do a physical exam on the first visit. We do vital signs, but that's it. And it's the second visit that I do the lab interpretation and the, and the physical examination. So well, thank you so much, Doc. Thank you for being such a wealth of information. Thank you for being such a lovely human that makes it even that much more fun when you share it with us. So we thank you. We hope this answered your questions. To everyone out there, be healthy, enjoy your day, and we hope to see you soon. Take it easy, y'all. Thank you, Steve. Bye.